0: like to begin this evening's talk with a few moments of sitting under the bodhi tree with siddhartha gotama as though sitting under the bodhi t- a bodhi tree with siddhartha gotama 2500 years ago towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree and after Mara the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind had let fly the poison arrows of greed aversion and delusion the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and distract Siddhartha from his clarity and the strength of his great vow and his his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisattva, the just-about-to-be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep, power and cool ease of an unwavering, undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place. In response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we said, maybe not always exactly like the Buddha but we sit, we practice with sincerity, with diligence we sit and walk practicing here, here in retreat over weeks, some of you over months and all of us all of you have practiced and will most likely practice intensively again in other places, at other times, alone, and with others. Our aspirations and determinations are often clearly and strongly felt and known, though sometimes they pale and even may occasionally be forgotten in the unfolding of our lives. But certainly for many of us, most of us, more often than not, they're woven, really woven, into the very constitution of our lives. And so as we do practice over the years, through this lifetime, the particular qualities of mind and heart that were so perfectly matured, unfabricated and unprompted at that amazing point in time, all perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree. As we practice, these capacities of mind and heart continue to grow, continue to deepen and develop, continue to mature and to be known within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening, I'd like to touch into and explore the quality or the factor of mind uh, that the Buddha said was like a precious gem. The precious gem of mindfulness. Exploring mindfulness from the standpoint of it being a most essential factor of liberation. We'll look into mindfulness from two perspectives. That of our direct experience, our cultivation or prompting of this quality through our ongoing practice. And within this, recognizing the great power of protection and healing that mindfulness brings as it develops and as it takes root. We'll also touch into mindfulness from the perspective of its unfabricated, unprompted presence as an aspect of the mind, of the heart, of non-clinging, the natural place of mindfulness in the liberated mind, the liberated heart. Thank you for your mindfulness. (laughs) So as I mentioned, the Buddha speaks about mindfulness as being a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, dispassion, and renunciation. The very conditions that we have right here on retreat. Mindfulness is a key factor for the mind, a key factor for the heart, to ripen into relinquishment. Relinquishment in this case meaning the letting go, the letting go into liberation, letting go into Nibbana. As we explore together this evening, consider the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which from my own experience is facilitated by what we might call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. In support of this, it's helpful to deeply relax in and through the body. So, right now, just taking a moment or two and relaxing from head to toe. Dropping into the body with a bright attention. Relaxed and brightly alert at the same time. Letting the whole body, mind and heart deeply relax into directly and simply hearing. So this factor of mindfulness... I uh, very often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all of the factors of enlightenment. And in fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for awakening. with its establishment and blossoming, it's the factor that really offers us our greatest protection. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. He called it the chief. And so when I uh, read this in one of the suttas, I thought, well, maybe that's kind of a male way of thinking about it. The mother and the chief the female and the male way so i put them together and call mindfulness the chief mother <laughs> in pali the word for mindfulness is sati which is sometimes translated as memory or or to remember to remember to reconnect to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. Attention directed to the present moment. I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of inertia. Years ago in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I think it's a good question to ask yourself sometimes especially these days, uh, because mindfulness has become a kind of household word, not a bad thing, but it also, because of that, has lost some of its depth, depth. some of its potency has dissipated. What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This Moments' experience is this, just this much. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful, Awareness, being receptive to what is without the forethought of concepts, past experiences, or ideas of how we think it is or should be or could be. As Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. And as the Zen teacher Nim says, don't know mind. Don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindfulness, Opening the door to the truth, sometimes appearing so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The mindfulness that the Buddha instructs us towards asks us to not remain resting in our old habits, to not re- remain resting in a kind of inertia but to really meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy. To come close and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't float or skim across the surface of things. It connects with and goes right into the object. And at the same time, it's not a fixed or sticky connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on the object just long enough and deep enough to know it. It's this flavor that allows a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I'll repeat that. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. So, in this light, mindfulness doesn't think, I'm doing this, or... I'm doing that. The moment we think, I'm doing this, we become self-conscious. And we're creating or recreating a sense of self. Again, creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of how it is. Separating our self out from the truth of the way of things. Again, creating the duality of an it and a me. And living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me. This factor of mindfulness is about living in the action living in the present moment's experience. So in a sense, we forget ourself. We lose our self, so to say, in what is. And so there's just what is, without anything added or needing to be added and without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic. Not the magic created by magicians who create an illusion and then pull us into that illusion, that delusion. The magic and the beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound, we're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things, and then caught again and again in our reactivity to these assumed, meaning not clearly seen, appearances. The result being that we often unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. and again from Krishnamurti. If we don't know what mindfulness is, we're like a blind person in a world of bright color, shadows, and moving light. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us, want happiness. Most of us want our lives to be, much of our experience in life to be permanent, ongoing, or at least deeply fulfilling. Or we want it to suit our passing fancies, our expectations, or our heartfelt and deepest desires. Consequently, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to find this. And very often by getting this and that, or him and her, or doing this and that, going here and there. Or we try to find, we try to get an ongoing contentment Happiness, fulfillment through the constantly changing world of our senses and through the various and myriad constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. It's not possible. Look closely, look very closely. Come close and see and feel your experience directly. The Buddha spoke about happiness beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. Our meditation practice cultivates mindfulness. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we truly bring our attention to the present moment. We practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment. And as I mentioned, this is a practice of deepest intimacy, the intimacy of a direct connection with the immediacy of experience in our body and mind the deepest intimacy with our own experiences which as practice develops, expands and matures becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, be aware. Intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. See and know what is, what truly is. How is it in this present moment? In this present moment? In this present moment? Essentially, this is what all forms of Buddhist practice leads to. How is it experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to the present moment's experience is what allows clarity and true understanding, insight to arise. To just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't have to do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, ever present, immediately close always and everywhere, intimately, right here, right now. And it's our greatest protection. A number of years ago now, I was teaching a class um, in Taos, a beginning mindfulness class, meditation class, in Taos, where I live, Taos, New Mexico. There was a woman in the class who came in uh, one morning. Each morning we began our class with sharing something from the week, our previous week, uh, in relationship to what we had been learning the week before. So this woman came in and shared that that morning, before she came to class, she had been watering her garden. She'd watered her garden many, many, many times. But she said that morning, She was watering her garden and it was as though she was watering it for the first time. She said it was amazing. And then she said, how have we survived so long without being mindful? Terrible things are done when mindfulness isn't present. Which for a moment kind of stopped everybody in their tracks, so to say, in class. The protection of mindfulness. The Buddha Dharma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. And as some of you may know in ancient Buddhist languages, the word for heart-mind is it's heart mind it's the same word in english and in many western languages i think it's two separate things we kind of separate ourselves so often i use it use the word heart mind as as though it were a one word and the buddha dhamma is about transforming the heart mind and so we practice we Developed, we prompt this transformation through meditation practice. Meditation that's based in mindfulness. In fact, if we're not mindful, not bringing our full attention to the present moment, what's happening is that, is that we're living at a distance from experience. Living at a distance from life itself which just keeps the circle, the cycle of conditioned habit patterns, the reactive cycle going round and round and round, feeding and strengthening itself, more automatic, robot-like, kind of like our computers. You know, you, pu- you push the button and out comes what's in there. When our buttons are pushed, out pops our conditioned Patterns are conditioned reactions. Automatically, if we're not mindful, without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our percep- our perceptive, our per- perspective, <laughs> our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas, preconceptions, opinions, judgments, and similar past experiences. For instance, an experience that probably most everybody in this room has had. You meet someone new, and you don't see them as they actually are. You see them in relationship maybe to what you're thinking about them. How much you think you like them or are attracted to them or how much you think you don't like them or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. And so you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities that you're thinking about. Or you see this new person in relation to how you hope they are or what you want from them or what you hope you can get from them or hope you won't get from them. So you're not experiencing this person you've just met in themselves. Without mindfulness, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see, eat, hear, touch, smell, think is immediately interpreted back to ourselves in conformity with our habitual thoughts and habit patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindfulness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus, to see things as they truly are, as though for the first time, without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, beginner's mind, When one of my grandsons was two-and-a-half years old, I had the great good fortune of being with him uh, the first time that he saw a pine cone. He and his mother and I were walking outside, and there was a pine cone on the ground. He picked it up. He looked at it, turned it every which way, looked at it very carefully put it up to his nose, smelled it all the way around, stuck his tongue on it, licked it, tasted it, investigating with all the sense doors, feeling it with his fingers. We watched him, and then I don't remember which one of us, his mother or I, dutifully told him it was a pine cone. And he kind of looked up at us with a little bit of a quizzical look, But he was a good boy, so he repeated the word (laughs) pinecone. And then immediately went back to his investigation, his direct experience of (laughs) pinecone with a mind that was fresh, with beginner's mind. This is a state that we can learn to bring into our own life as a whole. As we learn, or in a sense, relearn to do this, it's transformative, transformative and healing. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine the best medicine to make us dwell in the deepest way and the most profound way. And one description of this that I like a lot goes something like this. One who is awakened, who has taken the medicine of the teachings and practiced meditation and healed the sickness is one who is freed from suffering. And that's really the very deepest healing that we can know. Freedom from the suffering of confusion, anguish, fear. Freedom from the ongoing wanting that stems from ongoing dissatisfaction. Freedom from suffering. There are Four domains of mindfulness. Four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And so I'd like to spend some time now exploring the first of these. Our first domain of mindfulness is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such not one's feelings, ideas, concerns, interpretations, or emotions about it. And of course there are many and varied aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. One of our primary orientations to the body through our practice is mindfulness of breathing, as we're all well aware of. And I have to say, because I think sometimes there's some misunderstanding about this, breath as an object of our mindful attention is not just a beginner's instruction or a beginner's way of practicing. The understanding that's accessible through this mode of mindfulness is potentially profound in making the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or the sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils a basic ground of mindful attention. In my own practice, I have, at times over the years, been deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and the breadth of what there is to be known and understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath happening. So just for a moment now, close your eyes and let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the rising and falling or the in and out at the nostrils without any self or with as little self as possible. Are you trying to control, trying to manipulate the breath? noticing this without judgment without self-recrimination in a moment of seeing clearly there's often a sense of relief as a friend of mine says seeing is relieving We might at times particularly notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation directly as sensation, movement, as vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath, noticing it maybe right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to the end. Maybe actually noticing the ending, the cessation of a breath and the beginning of the next inhalation. Or we may simply notice the in and out breathing itself, basically just this, which tends to cultivate an increasing quiet, tranquil, and peaceful breathing, and an all-over body-mind calm and tranquility. The body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday, casual way of natural noticing and awareness of our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, and more constant and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking and in all the movements of the body, getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, carrying things, even bringing mindfulness into the experiences of falling asleep and waking up. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement, beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is, in itself? Can standing be simply known as just standing? Sitting as just simply sitting? Sitting? Walking as just simply walking without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking, sitting, etc. Once many years ago, one of my teachers, Saida Upandita, asked me, Is there a woman or a man or A person, when you're fully connected and mindful of and noting, walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations. For just a brief moment, I was kind of caught in the question, which in retrospect, I think, was a kind of test of my practice at the time. But very quickly there was a spontaneous brief reflection and response to Saido. No, there's no woman, no man, or anybody known when I'm directly connected with and mindful of walking or whatever phenomena is happening. A question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful attention of the body in the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, the intention to followed by the action. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, volition begins, where it starts from, and how it feels in our body. I don't, in some independent, mysteriously isolated way decide to stand or sit or lift an arm or a leg or take a step. If we act from the place of identification, separateness, isolation we will eventually or maybe very quickly experience some degree of suffering. As we play a closer, more intimate mindful attention to the subtleties in the actions of the body and the subtleties of the experiences within the body and their interrelatedness, we may begin to see and understand the role of volition, where it comes from, how it arises, and not take it personally. And with this, in a non-conceptual way touch come to know a deeper, subtler cause of suffering which can then open our heart to an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? A number of years ago, I had a student, a very deeply dedicated practitioner who was so right up into his uh, dying moment. And he he died of AIDS, and I went to be with him in the hospital every day because he wanted to sit, wanted me to come and others to come and sit with him. So one afternoon when I was with him in the hospital sitting, a lot of metta practice, that was his primary practice through his dying process and into his, right into his death. So we were there uh, one afternoon and he stretched his arm up overhead while he was lying in bed and he looked at it very carefully turning it around looking at it from all directions this was very close to his death actually and then he said in a very cool and yet kind of an odd way he said wow wow The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are just as dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger, or the sensation of coolness on the skin, or the liking or disliking of some experience, or Roy's body being as thin and light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth, they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear unfettered and intimate attention to the body, its movements, and the process of intentions that we begin to see directly and to experience the truth of it. The next establishment or domain of mindfulness of the body as a body that the Buddha suggests actually he doesn't suggest, but suggested, he uh, directs us towards it, is giving attention to the parts of the body. And in the Buddhist uh, practices, it's 32 parts. It's taught as 32 parts. Hair, skin, all the various internal organs and fluids. And in our case, here, we most likely notice them as they make themselves known, such as the stomach or the bladder, maybe the liver, the gallbladder, the heart, the lungs, etc. And I have no doubt that we do notice many parts of our body during retreat. But how often do we notice them in a mindful way? How identified are we, for instance, with the hair on our head, or the lack of it, or the hair on our body? How do we attend to the experiences of our stomach, our colon, and the digestive processes therein? Or to a moment or many moments' experience of the heart? How do we experience moments in relation to the skin? This bag of skin that holds all the various contents of the body. How often do we experience our nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, or any part of our body or bodily experience with what I call the extraordinary qualities Of mindful attention. A non judgmental, non manipulative, non grasping, non rejecting, non self identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of feelings, ideas, concerns, interpretations, and emotions about it. Just the body as a body. And this is from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. Another aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other matter or form. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, potentially a kind of non-ordinary way to cut through the I am identification. And we might touch into this directly, not conceptually, but directly, through experiencing and knowing the experiences in the body of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness each of these being the direct experiences of the earth element. When we come to know the experiences of flowing and cohesion in the body, we're connecting with the water element. And when we directly experience and intimately know heat and cold, we know the fire element. The air element is experienced and known directly within the body through the experiences of pushing and supporting. For instance, whenever there's movement, such as the obvious sensations when the belly distends or the chest expands with breathing or the pulse beat of the heart as it pumps, there's always pushing. How intimately, how mindfully connected are we to these most basic and universal kinds of experiences? This body in its elemental nature, essentially no different than any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly not something that we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting such as this. But the truth of the matter is that there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Possibly insects maybe birds or other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants, trees, and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms are mortal. They have the nature to die and decompose, or just deconstruct and decompose. So it's possible to observe this directly in some ways. I've been in retreat at various times in various places and quite purposefully observed the process of flowers and grasses dying and going through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod, where we'd rented a house for a couple of months of practice together, I had the great good fortune, we could say, uh, good fortune only in some circles, uh, to come upon a dead seal on the beach. And every day for a month I walked down to that body, and sat with it for a little while noticing the process of decomposition and decay which in this particular instance was happening very quickly because it was being helped along by the seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be delicious food. This daily practice over that month-long retreat was really a heart-mind-changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England and the senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah tells about a time that he was when he was living in the monastery in Thailand. And he asked that he be able to spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, uh, although somewhat reluctantly. And he says that all his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged or maybe more accurately, fully assaulted, as he said. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell. He said it almost drove him out of, out the door, but he stayed. He just stayed mindfully present and little by little it became tolerable. Just a smell, he said, just a scent. He talked about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding the package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in the various stages of decay all around him. He mentions that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it. And he was puzzled at first. And then he quickly realized that the bloated body in front of him could explode at any moment. And he said he dearly hoped that it wouldn't happen while he was there. (laughs) And it didn't. He said that when he went back out onto the street after that day of practice in the morgue, he saw people in a radically new way, with a radically wide-open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. Every living form is mortal, and we're so attached to forms, our own form and that of others. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for and an attachment to. For instance, forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are amusing or interesting to us or simply familiar forms. And I think what is actually strange and amazing is that we go on thinking and acting as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or maybe not so subtle tension and stress in us. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do we know the body? How are we established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? It's through our own direct experience that we come to understand the true nature of things, not through thinking about, imagining, hoping for, philosophizing about, or believing in. It can be helpful to check in now and then and see if we're practicing in ways that are really truly moving us towards realization. The realization of understanding, insight, wisdom, and the realization of the qualities of metta and compassion. Practice that's subtly or more overtly rooted in wrong ideas, misconceptions or misperceptions, can become quite deeply rooted in the mind and accompany us along our way of practice for many years. So a good question you might Ask yourself now and then, am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? Through a clear, connected attention in this first domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body in the body, we may come to touch, if only for a moment, the end of suffering. Our heart and mind opening in that moment to an unimaginable existence, experience of peace, ease, and a pervasive sense of well-being, which is really just simply our natural human potential, our natural human possibility. Mindfulness is kind of like a great treasure hunt. Within the framework of practice, we find the way, each of us, in our own unique ways, which has to do with our particular specific conditioning. We find, we discover the treasures of the truth, the treasures of the way of things. Through our own direct experience, we discover the liberating treasures of who we are in the deepest and actually the most perfectly natural ways. And I'd like to close the talk with a brief poem by David White. It's in this this high place it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face.